welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month, we take a look at genetic counselling for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. What it can and can't do, who should have it, and how to go about it. The last few years, we have uh, discovered a lot of new genes, and we have now the idea that um, genetics is much more important than uh, we thought before. But before that, the safety and efficacy of thalmic deep brain stimulation, or DBS, in essential tremor. We know that this is good in the short term, but now a paper in JNMP reveals how patients are faring over a decade after having had the device implanted. I spoke to the one of the authors about what this revealed, Joseph Jankovic, from the Parkinson's Disease Centre and Movement Disorders Clinic at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. Firstly, he outlined the use of thalmic DBS in the condition. Uh, essential tremor is one of the most common neurological disorders that we see in our clinic, and uh, it is also one of the most prevalent uh, disorder in the general population. Maybe 5% of all people over the age of 65 uh, have essential tremors, so it's one of the most common uh, disorders. Yet the treatment uh, for this uh, disorder is uh, really quite uh, limited, and in fact, many studies suggest that uh, 25 to 55% of patients uh, who uh, are treated uh, for essential tremor have unsatisfactory response to the treatment, so they continue to be troubled or disabled you know, by their tremor. So medical therapy is certainly used first in patients with severe essential, essential tremor, yet many um, patients do not satisfactorily respond to medical therapy and require surgery, including D-brain stimulation. You know, we've been interested in uh, D-brain stimulation for the last uh, 20 years and have treated thousands of patients uh, with uh, DBS uh, for a variety of conditions, including essential tremor. We thought it would be uh, important to look at uh, the long-term effect uh, of DBS in essential tremor. So we uh, looked at uh, our database uh, that we have in uh, our Bell College of Medicine Parkinson's Disease Center and identified uh, about 48 uh, individuals uh, we have treated uh, with essential tremor since uh, 2003. Unfortunately, many of these patients uh, were not able to uh, participate in the study because uh, long distance from our center, some of them already were deceased, but we finally uh, enrolled uh, 13 patients. Sure. So how did you actually uh, assess the the tremor? What were the the outcomes that you examined? So we used a number of uh, measures, but uh, the main outcome measure was uh, the reduction in the score as uh, estimated or measured by the FAN-Tolosa-Marin tremor rating scale, or TRS. This is a relatively standard uh, rating scale that is used uh, to assess tremor. What we found was um, that uh, there was a marked uh, difference um, in uh, the off and on state uh, on the motor items of the TRS, the trauma rating scale. There was a reduction of about 42% in um, the overall score in in the non-blinded assessment and about 37% reduction in the blinded assessment as uh, um, measured um, or assessed by the blinded uh, movement disorder expert. Great. And and did it seem to be particularly effective for um, particular types of tremor or was it across the board? 
it was uh, fairly effective across the board. In fact, when we sort of did a sub-analysis uh, to look at uh, right-hand tremor, which uh, obviously is the most disabling tremor in patients who are you know, right-hand dominant, the uh, reduction was uh, even more substantial in the right-hand tremor. It was about 50% reduction. Overall, um, the DBS was effective for uh, both contralateral tremor but there was also a slight reduction, actually, in the ipsilateral tremors, so that was somewhat surprising. So some of the patients had bilateral DBS and some had just unilateral DBS, but uh, in both groups of patients, there was a significant reduction in the tremor, especially in the contralateral tremor. How does that compare then to the um, the short-term studies that we've seen? So obviously one of the, the main points of, of your paper is that it is you've got the follow-up up to, to 13 years, so it is going that bit further than a lot of the research that we've seen before. Admittedly, the reduction in the tremor in our study was um, somewhat uh, less robust than what has been reported in the literature, but what's unique about uh, our study was the long uh, duration of uh, treatment, uh, as I pointed, some of the patients were treated up to almost 14 years, and um, uh, so this is by far the longest follow-up uh, of any uh, study. I think the second uh, longest follow-up uh, report in the literature was about 7.6 years. So um, during that period of time, uh, from the um, initial implantation to our assessment, obviously there is a, a progression of the tremors, so that may account for the somewhat less robust improvement that we observed in our study compared to the other studies that had a, a relatively short-term you know, follow-up. But nevertheless, even after this uh, very long uh, follow-up, uh, the patients continue to respond. Great. And, and were you able to, to look at the, the maintenance of the, of the effect? Did these patients need follow-up surgery, for example? There were some patients that uh, did require, of course, replacement uh, of the batteries. Uh, there were some patients that required revision of the electrodes. Uh, one patient, incidentally, uh, developed uh, a meningioma, uh, and this tumor compressed on the electrodes, so uh, obviously the meningioma had to be treated. So th- there were some complications that were observed, but uh, this was not out of the scope that has been reported in, in other studies. There were no serious you know, adverse effects um, in uh, any of our patients. None of our patients had to be hospitalized because of DPS-related complications. Certainly none of our patients died as a result of uh, DPS uh, complications. Great. So the thalmic DPS seems to be safe and uh, effective even up to those, you know, almost 14 years. Is that the the take-home message? Even after uh, 14 years of... uh, uh, deep brain stimulation, the patients continue to benefit and there were no serious side, side effects. I should point out that uh, in a separate uh, study, we uh, actually looked at uh, patients who, after long-term DBS, came to autopsy and looked at uh, the pathological changes that occur at uh, the tip of the electrode or in surrounding and, and found that uh, there were really no pathological changes that were noted after this long-term stimulation. This was um, certainly a concern when we first started to do DBS that this chronic stimulation could produce some pathological changes. Great, that, that's good to hear for such an invasive procedure. And um, this this was just one site that you you looked at. It was the, the ventral intermediate nucleus of, of the thalamus where the um, the DBS was targeted. 
Are there any other targets that you're going to investigate? So uh, we obviously looked at patients uh, with essential tremor and a favorite target for patients with essential tremor is uh, VIM thalamus. But there are other targets that have been suggested uh, to have equal or even more uh, beneficial effect, uh, including the stimulation of the caudal zona inserta. And we are beginning to look at that, those targets uh, as well. We previously published uh, some data also on subthalamic nucleus uh, being effective uh, not only in patients with Parkinson's disease-related tremor, but also in patients with essential tremor. Great. Okay, so there's more to come then. Um, well, that all sounds very uh, good and reassuring. Um, and thanks very much for your time in, in telling us more about the paper. Uh, you're welcome. Now we're going to get some clinical suggestions on genetic counselling in ALS from Adriano Kio, who's professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the Turin ALS Expert Centre. So good morning, Adriano. Thanks very much for talking to us. Good morning. So first of all, tell me why you felt the need to put this review together. Um, I know genetic counselling is particularly new. I mean, was it recent advances or was it that you thought clinicians were not particularly clued up on, on this subject? Why did, you, why did you feel now was the time to do it? Well, um, the, there, there has been a, a real um, genetic revolution in ALS. Uh, um, in uh, the last few years, we have uh, discovered a lot of new genes, uh, and we have now the idea that um, genetics is much more important than uh, we thought before. So uh, our patients are asking for genetics. They ask, may I uh, transmit the disease to other persons in my family, to my, to my child, the children? So the, the problem is that how to manage such a, such a new problem. That's the reason why we decided to uh, make a review, and uh, the review is based on a uh, consensus conference we made, uh, including a neurologist, uh, geneticist, uh, and uh, ethicist, and psychologist, in order to understand how uh, we could give a good answer to our patients. Great, okay, so it's come out from a real practical need then. Absolutely. And, and we're used to thinking about ALS in terms of familial cases, but also sporadic cases. So what kind of proportion do you think are actually um, have genetic risk factors? Well, if we go to the uh, family uh, trees, uh, we have about 10% of patients who have a genetic, clear genetic transmission, uh, including patients who have uh, parents or other relatives with uh, frontotemporal dementia, because there is a strict correlation between ALS and, and frontotemporal dementia. Mm. But now we know that uh, uh, some patients with apparently sporadic ALS have really a, new, a genetic mutation, which is pathogenetics. So we know that there are uh, patients w- without a clear family uh, history of ALS that are genetics and can transmit the disease to other members of the family. So the point is that probably the proportion is uh, at least 15% of cases with genetic mutation and uh, 85% without genetic mutation as far as we know because we are discovering new mutations and so the proportion is, uh, uh, is, is changing. Okay. So, I mean, that takes us on to um, 
who who really should be be offered genetic counselling for ALS because it would be very useful if you could take us through this step by step. So, I mean, who should clinicians be be thinking about offering this kind of counselling for and and who really shouldn't be having it or or won't be able to benefit from it? Okay, uh, well, the the first point is uh, uh, if there is a a family history for ALS and uh, or frontotemporal dementia, uh, well, definitely we have to uh, propose a genetic counselling and to discuss genetics uh, um, with the patient and uh, if the family wants, also with the family member. If a, a, a patient is a, an apparently sporadic, that, that is the problem to have the major discussion within us. Uh, the point is that the, there are indications if the patient is quite young, um, uh, under 50, under 45, the um, chance to be genetic is uh, higher, so it could be discussed with also the, with this patient uh, and maybe offered the, the genetic analysis. With the other patients uh, with sporadic ALS, um, well, we should be discussed the possibility that there is a mutation, but according to our uh, discussion, we decided to not, uh, do not offer the test unless the patient asks for, for, for it. Uh, the reason is uh, because uh, if you do a test, uh, you involve the family, mm-hmm. uh, there, are, there is a lot of emotion with that. So at the moment, uh, since there is no therapy for ALS, there is no reason to have the testing on uh, apparently sporadic ALS. And, and what about um, family members who aren't symptomatic? Should they be offered this kind of counselling to see if they're at risk? Uh, it's uh, it's a, a really ethical problem because there is no therapy. So uh, at mm. the moment, should not be offered according to our uh, proposal. Uh, but uh, if they want, we can discuss. Uh, it's very important to discuss it because genetics is very complex. So there are um, it's, it's not black and white. So it's uh, important to discuss about. Uh, the point is that um, in this case, we must be very cautious with the patients. And we uh, should, uh, with, with, if they're not patients, with the asymptomatic subject at risk, uh, because the implication of uh, a positive genetic result are so strong for the life of uh, this person that uh, we need to be very cautious, we need to discuss. And uh, we have seen that uh, in several cases, they ask to do the um, uh, genetic analysis, but never come back to have the result of the genetic analysis because they are too afraid to obtain it. Right. So the point is to discuss very, very well that with these relatives. Okay, so, so at the moment it's just not useful for um, people who aren't symptomatic to have that kind of knowledge because there's nothing you can do for them. Yeah. Okay. As you said, it's a very complex, emotional test for, for people to, to go through and, and can have you know profound implications for, for them and their family. So when a patient comes to you and is asking about this kind of counselling, um, what do clinicians need to tell them in that initial consultation? What knowledge do they need to have to be able to make that decision? Uh, well, the, we, have, we, we, we need to discuss uh, uh, very clearly about uh, uh, what we know and what we do not know about uh, the uh, genetics of ALS and the implication of, of what we really uh, know and do not know. Uh, the point is that uh, we know a lot of genes. We know that some mutations are clearly pathogenic, 
But some mutations are not so pathogenic. They have uh, the so-called reduced penetrance. So a patient, a subject can have the mutation and do not develop the disease. So the point is that uh, we have to discuss about everything. We don't know if you have the mutation when the disease will will uh, will uh, will appear in the in the case of asymptomatic subjects, obviously. We know that uh, we have to, to discuss about the modality of transmission of of, of the gene because uh, most of genes are dominant. So it's very complex, but we need to give all these information. And, and what about, do you offer any psychological testing at your centre, or do you just leave that up to the, the discretion of the neurologist? No, absolutely. Uh, we, uh, during the discussion, we have uh, both the geneticist and the psychologist, and uh, usually uh, the psychologist has uh, several uh, uh, possibilities to discuss. Uh, they, they, they have a session of discussion uh, with a psychologist without the presence of the neurologist and uh, the genetist. This is very important because uh, it, um, the patient can uh, really discuss freely uh, his uh, or her emotion uh, yeah. during a discussion with a psychologist. Yeah. When you're delivering those results, how do you do it in your centre? Is that done by purely the neurologist or is it a, a team thing? How do you actually go about doing that? No, there is the team, uh, the neurologist, the genetist, and the psychologist. Uh, if we have found the gene, and also if we have not found the gene, because we have to explain also what happens if there is not a gene that we uh, could uh, could uh, identify. We ask, do you want to really know what the result? And then uh, usually the patient has the possibility to make all um, all the questions uh, he or she wants to do to all the the group, the, the team together. And uh, is, uh, or she has the possibility to have, uh, again, a session or more sessions with a psychologist. Um, usually, just after the um, uh, discussion of the result, uh, the neurologist and uh, the genetist go uh, out of, uh, from, from the room and uh, the patient uh, remains uh, alone with the psychologist. Right, so it really is a multidisciplinary approach then. Uh, we think it's necessary. It's a very, very, very complex, really, because, because uh, you know, to, to put together three, uh, three professionals and so on. But at the moment, we think it's very, very important to have that. That sounds very sensible. And I also wanted to ask you about um, direct-to-consumer tests, because we've seen with a lot of diseases... Um, that patients can, can simply go on the internet and, and order these, these kinds of genetic tests. So do, are any of these available for ALS? And do you have problems with um, patients coming to you who have had them, but obviously haven't had any of the counselling around them? Uh, well, uh, the point is that fortunately in Italy we have not uh, patients who are using this, uh, this, uh, this way. I mean the, uh, the tests from the internet. Uh, but okay. in the U.S., I know that they are re- uh, really uh, starting to use that, and that's, that's really dangerous because uh, the patients need to have uh, an explanation uh, of what the meaning of the result. Yeah. Um, and that's true. Uh, uh, if the result is positive, I mean, if there is a gene, a mutated gene, but it's also true if the result is negative, if there is not a mutated gene, because it's uh, and we need to explain that uh, we don't know uh, we, uh, all the genes of ALS. So a negative, um, a negative result 
is not negative, uh, totally negative, but there is still a possibility that there is a gene that we have not yet discovered. So it's very important to explain that. Yeah, that, that tends to be the advice for, uh, for all of these tests, really, these um, direct-to-consumer tests. Well, yeah. well, thank you very much uh, for that advice. Do you have any final thoughts or messages for neurologists? Is there anywhere they can go to get more information? No, well, the, the only message is that uh, at the moment we need to have uh, centers who are uh, uh, really experts in, uh, in genetics, uh, ELS centers. So if a neurologist uh, in uh, small hospitals uh, wants uh, to do genetics, it's better to um, uh, to, to send the patients uh, uh, to uh, these centers in order to have a really expert uh, uh, mm. um, management of the patient. At the moment, the institute probably will not saw uh, this, this, uh, this way, but at the moment it's better to have um, uh, a little bit centralized uh, uh, analysis because it's very complex and uh, you see we need to have a, 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 um, a group of, uh, um, of specialists uh, uh, in order to uh, deliver the good, info, the correct information to the patient. Okay, great. So expect some referrals after this podcast then. Yeah. Okay, well, um, Adriano, okay. thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for your uh, questions. <laughs> and do take a look at those papers on jnmp.bmj.com if you want more of the detail. I say this most months, but the papers we feature in these podcasts are the editors and patient choices, and so are completely free to read, in full. Not just the abstract, everything. And whilst I'm at it, don't forget about our Facebook and Twitter feeds. These are Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry on Facebook, and JNMP underscore BMJ on Twitter. JNMP editor Matthew Kiernan and also web editors William Huynh and Cindy Lynn are behind these. So expect updates from the world of neurology in general, as well as the journal. Thanks for joining me for May's journal highlights. And keep an eye on the site for special podcasts from the British Neuropsychiatry Association and also the Association of British Neurologists. Be with you next month. Bye.